Genesis 31. Jacob has been around Laban at this point uh, about 20 years. That's a long time to be with a guy like that. His mother said he'd be back in a few days. Remember that? Back in Genesis 27. You'll be back in a few days, Jacob. And it's been 20 years, so it's been longer than that. That was her plan, to come back quickly. That was not God's plan. God had another plan because he wanted Laban, of all people, think about this, to teach Jacob lessons of grace that only he could learn under those circumstances. God puts us in all kinds of circumstances to teach us lessons. That, and you think, why am I even here in this place, in this situation? You wonder why. Because God's teaching you something that you couldn't learn any other place. It could be some obscure, totally obscure job or situation or something. I've been through that. I know what that is. But now it's time to say goodbye to Laban. Time to say goodbye. Head back home. Head back to Jacob's home. We're going to have four key words that's going to, that will guide us through this chapter tonight. Four key words. The first word is departure. Departure in the first 18 verses. That's what this chapter is about. Jacob's departure from Laban. You have to understand that. This whole chapter is about that. But how did it happen? Well, first of all, his departure was motivated by Laban. Motivated by Laban. Verse 1, Jacob heard the words of Laban's son saying, Jacob has taken away all that our fathers, that was our fathers, and from what belonged to our father. He has made all this wealth. Jacob saw the attitude of Laban. Behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. See that there's a change of attitude in the first verse. A complete about face. Laban and his sons once felt greatly blessed. Remember that? Oh, we're greatly blessed to have Jacob here. It's a wonderful thing. Didn't Laban himself say that back in verse 27 of the last chapter? The Lord has blessed me on your account, Jacob. And didn't Jacob confirm that statement when he said, You had little before I came, but look how much has increased since then. Didn't Jacob greatly disadvantage himself by choosing to work for the speckled and the spotted striped sheep? Those were very rare. He didn't say, I want to work for the black and white sheep. We talked about this last week, which were typical. Uh, could have made a killing on those. But he says, no, I'll take the multicolored ones. And even though he greatly disadvantaged himself, nevertheless, God still prospered him. Made it very difficult on himself. But look at verse 43 of chapter 30. So the man, Jacob, became exceedingly prosperous. Had large flocks, female and male servants and camels and donkeys, all that. And now the attitude of Laban has turned sour. He no longer feels blessed by Jacob's presence. Before he did, Jacob was a valued employee, and now the fault is laid at Jacob's feet. Somehow Jacob has tricked Laban. Somehow he's at fault. Somehow, look at the sons of Laban. Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and he has made all this wealth. All of it. Now the word translated wealth means is actually literally glory. Uh, to the sons of Laban, wealth was glory. That's how they saw his glory. This family clearly, clearly not interested in uh, the glory of God. Not at all. Not one bit. They're only interested in one thing. That's the glory of wealth. How much monetary glory can we attain on this planet in the way of wealth? Sons of Laban are on track to inherit their father's wealth, and they don't want to lose any of it. And now they're jealous. Jacob's stolen it from us, they say. That's how people in the world evaluate things. They evaluate life that way. It's based on how much monetary wealth do I have? Matthew Henry said, riches are glorious things in the eyes of carnal people. That is glory to them. That's how they see life. That's glor what's glorious. Even professing believers can be caught up in this kind of earthly glory. That's why the Apostle Paul tells in 1 Timothy, he said, even 
uh, that some people by longing for money, listen to this, some by longing for money have even wandered away from the faith. They've left the faith in their pursuit of wealth. We're not talking about planning and saving and budgeting right now. We're talking about the pursuit of wealth in and of itself. Laban and his sons were greedy. But, but their evaluation was also probably exaggerated. It had to be because in the last chapter, remember in verse 35, Laban and his sons are watching a flock. They're watching flocks. So they had some flocks. In this chapter, verse 19, we'll look at it later, Laban is shearing his flock. Did, did Jacob really take away all of the flocks? Did he take all of them away? The thing is, a lot of people, any loss of revenue at all stirs them to jealousy, to anger, to exaggeration. People begin to exaggerate. You know, when your hopes and dreams are built upon, your, upon the wealth of this world, your attitude changes when your financial status changes. If your finances are in good shape today, you have good 401K, good retirement, uh, you get a raise, then you're happy. This is typical of people, right? But if the stock market drops, your investments go south, things aren't looking so good, then you're unhappy. That's what happens when you serve money instead of Christ, serving the wrong master. That puts you in that position. These are, this describes the sons of Laban. This is how they live. This will almost be Jacob's fault, they said. So Jacob could just feel the tension in the air at this point. That motivates him to leave. I think it's time to go. Secondly, his departure is commanded by God. Look at verse 3. Commanded by God. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Now, there is no doubt as to his course of action at this point. At this point. The Lord has said, Go. And a lot of this, by the way, if you haven't been here in the last few weeks, we've laid the groundwork for a while on this whole set setting here. But now he must leave. The Lord has commanded him to do so. He must return to his homeland. And God knows he's going to encounter difficulties, especially with this guy Laban. And so he says, I, I will be with you. Isn't that comforting? That thought never ceases to be a comfort to God's people. I will be with you, which says again and again in the scriptures. He says it again. How many times have we seen this in Genesis already? And again, we have to go back to the promise made. And if you haven't been with us uh, lately, go back to Genesis 28, verse 13 to 15 in there, and you can read about the promises made to Jacob before he got to Laban's house. Back in Genesis 28, 15, the Lord says, Behold, I am what? I am with you. He says it again here. And I'll keep you wherever you go. You're going to go to Laban's house. I'll keep you. I'll watch over you. I'll take care of you. I'm going to oversee you. I'm going to... Uh, 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 watch over everything you do. And he says in uh, Genesis 28, 15, I'm going to bring you back to this land. Keep that in mind. He went 500 plus miles away from Canaan all the way to Laban's house. And God says to Jacob, I'm bringing you back to this land. He's got to fulfill the Abrahamic promise to have descendants in the land, to have the land itself, all these things. I'm going to bring you back, he says, to this land. He was promised that even before he arrived at Laban's house. Jacob had to, to flee uh, Canaan because Esau, his brother, threatened his death. Now the Lord says, I'm going to bring you back to this land. Now Jacob's mother, you remember her, Rebecca, in chapter 27? She, she said, I'll send for you. I want you to leave now because your brother's about ready to kill you because you tricked him. I, I'll send for you to get you back here. But she doesn't appear anymore in the story. It's, it's God who is going to bring him back, not his mother. And so his departure... Is commanded by God. Thirdly, his departure is urged by Jacob. 
It's urged by Jacob, verses 4 to 13. Now, I'm not going to read these verses because we have 55 verses to cover tonight, in case you didn't know, because in the Old Testament passage, you have to do this often. Uh, but I read this last week, this section. Stephen read it tonight. I'm not going to read it again. Let me just point out a few things about these verses here because we addressed some of them last week. Jacob is talking to his two wives, Leah and Rachel. And he says, look, the Lord has just spoken to me. I want you to know your father is treating me unfairly. Uh, and yet God, in spite of all that, has blessed me anyway. It was, in fact, it was God who made him wealthy. Look at verse 9. Thus God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. Again, not a total transfer of property, but he got a large portion of the flock because of God's blessing. The sons of, what did the sons of Laban say in verse 1? Jacob has taken away our father's wealth. But Jacob says, no, it was God. It was God who did it. God blessed me, and it was his business, not mine. Jacob did his part, yes. He worked hard. Uh, he, he put his best knowledge of, of shepherding skills uh, to work. We saw that in the previous chapter. He did what he thought he should do as a shepherd, and yet the father of lights gave, gave him every good and perfect gift. That's where he got it from, God. In verse 13 here in Genesis 31, the Lord says, I am the God of Bethel. That's where Jacob had made that vow to God uh, in Genesis 28. The God of Bethel, the God who makes promises, the God who keeps promises. And based on God's word, Jacob urges his wives, now it's time for us to leave your father's house. I think he thinks he might have a problem with his wives wanting to leave the home. He urges them, let's go, let's leave. Fourthly, the departure is confirmed by Jacob's wives, verses 14 to 16. Rachel and Leah said to him, do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has also entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. Turns out his wife, wives need no persuading whatsoever. They're tired of their father's shenanigans as well as he is. They're tired of the whole thing. They're ready to leave. Laban had mistreated not only Jacob, but his daughters also, strangely enough. The money that, that uh, he was going to make off J uh, Jacob because of the 14 years of service, free service, he apparently only used for himself. He should have given some of that to them, those daughters. They sh should have had a portion of it. In fact, one writer said that money should have been held in trust in the event Rachel and Leah were abandoned or widowed. But the daughters, look at the daughters in verse 14. They say, uh, has he not, verse uh, 14 15, uh, he has sold us. In other words, Laban uh, had sold them to Jacob for the price of 14 years of labor, free service. And yet, yet Laban spent it all. Uh, his daughters didn't benefit at all by it. You know, he looked at his daughters as objects to be used in, in the weddings. We, we studied all that. Just objects to be used by him. He even treats them like foreigners. That's what Rachel says. He's treated us like foreigners, like we were strangers to him. But they also recognized that God had turned the tables on them and on their father and provided for them from his father's wealth. The Lord did what Laban should have done. The Lord took care of it. But the most astounding thing that they say, this is very interesting in verse 16. Look at the end of verse 16. By the way, this is the greatest advice. If you're a wife and you want great advice, here's the greatest advice you could ever give to your husband. Look what they say. Do whatever God has said to you. What if every wife said that to her husband? And what if every husband said that to his wife? Do whatever the Lord says. Whatever the Lord has said in his word, do that thing. 
What if every believer in the church felt that way? They all said that to each other. If the Lord has said in his word, let's do it, let's live that way, that would, guess what? That would resolve, we talk about marital conflicts. We talk about conflicts, resolution all the time around here. That would resolve every marital conflict ever. Every conflict, period. Look, here's the, let me cut to the chase. Just do whatever the Lord says in his word. End of the discussion. Remember at the wedding feast in John 2? The, uh, they ran out of wine. And Mother the Mary of Jesus says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Do that thing. That's the way we should think. That's how, we should, that's how believers should think that way. Not difficult to, to understand. We always complicate all this. We complicate everything. Uh, and uh, that's how we do it. But it's very simple. It's this. Just do whatever God has said to you. Whatever he said in his word, just do that. Jacob's wife said, if God has said it's time to go, then we're behind you. We're on board. We're going to go with you. So look at verse 17. Then Jacob rose and put his children and his wives upon camels. And he, by the way, the camels were very expensive at that time, very rare at that time. So Jacob had accumulated quite a bit of wealth, and he drove away all his livestock and his property, which he had gathered, his acquired livestock, which he had gathered in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Well, sounds like a very smooth departure so far. No issues, no problems, everything's going just as planned, or is it? That brings us to our second key word, deception. Deception, verses 19 to 35. Now, the departure itself went off without a hitch. They were able to get out, no issue at all. Here's the problem. It's the plans made just prior to the departure that are the issue. Rachel had a plan. Jacob had a plan, and both plans involved deception, both of them. First of all is Rachel's deception. Look at verse 19. When Laban had gone to Shear's flock, then Rachel stole the household gods, uh, household idols that were her father's. Now, at the time of their departure, it was the season for sheep shearing. They would do that in the spring, shear the sheep. And that means the owners of the sheep, the shepherds, the, anybody they would hire, they would go off. They'd be off for several days, some, some days, a few days, or several days. They'd be away from home, and they would shear the sheep. But there's something, and that's where Laban is right now. But there's something that Rachel wants before she leaves her house. There's something she wants to take with her. The only problem is it doesn't belong to her it belongs to her father, and that thing is the household idols. What do we know now? We know that Laban is an, is an idolater. That's what we know. Or he would not have had these idols in his house. Now, that term, household idols, or some variation of it, is seen about 15 times in the Old Testament. These are probably images of the gods that the family felt protected them. They could be small or large. In one passage in the scripture, 1 Samuel 19, there's a large idol, as large as a man, as a matter of fact. Here, they're very small. They're usually used for divination purposes. Remember Laban claimed to be one who could practice divination and may have used these household gods in connection with that. They're worshipped by the family. Uh, Archaeology has uncovered these small figurines. This is the household Rachel grew up in. This is the life she knew growing up. And Rachel, seizing, no, seeing her opportunity, she decides to abscond with the idols. I'm taking these idols with me, which makes her a thief. Rachel knew that her father was gone. She waited for just the right time. Deceptive Rachel. You, know, this, you see the theme of deception all through this whole story? She, she has no idea. By the way, Laban has no idea what's going on at this time before they leave. He has no idea of the crime. No one else knows either. J- Joseph, Jacob doesn't know. Nobody knows. Uh, the word steal is mentioned seven times in this chapter. Again and again it's mentioned. But why? 
You ask yourself, when you get to the verse 19, all of a sudden, Rachel's stealing the household aisles. And you're like, why? We've heard so much, so many great things about you, Rachel, as we've listened to sermons over the years. <laughs> why are you doing this? Why are you stealing the idols? You know what the reason is? It doesn't say. It never tells us why. Now, there's several suggestions that have been made. I'll give you some of those. Some people say, well, I was trying to get payback from her father since they kind of got ripped off by him. He was a total rip-off guy. Some, maybe, maybe that's how, what happened. Some people say, well, maybe the idols were made of gold and silver, and they were valuable, and Rachel thought she could make money off them, so she stole them. Some people, there was an ancient document that stated if you, had the, if you possessed the household idols, you were guaranteed to be the legal heir of the property. That could be. Uh, maybe she felt if she kept her father's idols, it would keep him from having power over them. He could use the idols maybe to have power over them, she thought. It could be anything. But let me suggest this. Could it be because Rachel herself is an idolater? I don't know. Maybe she is. She grew up in a family which worshiped false gods. They're going to leave and go 500 miles plus to Canaan. Maybe she wants them for protection on the way. Or maybe some kind of good luck charm or something like that. In fact, chapter 35 may also play a role in this because later on, Jacob's going to say to his family members, his servants, he's going to say, put away all your idols. Maybe that's going to figure into this. I guess we get asked this question. Uh, what kind of a person, what, what, what is the normal reason a person typically steals something? Why do people steal things? And the answer is because they can enrich themselves usually with something. They can gain, maybe it's money, and they can enrich themselves. Or maybe they can use what they steal to purchase another item. For example, what do drug addicts do all the time? They steal constantly. Why? So they can buy drugs. They're always doing that. Um, and it seems to me, since Rachel doesn't tell anybody about it, says a word to no one, uh, she's actually willing to steal them from her own father. She's actually willing to hide them, that maybe she thinks this to her benefit, to steal the idols. I'm kind of suspicious that she herself is involved in idolatry in a secretive way. If that's the case, she's both a thief and an idolater. This is a bad departure when it comes down to it. But how could she both endorse the Lord and idols? Well, read the Old Testament, and you'll find out, because people did it in the Old Testament. They, they endorsed the, there's passages where they said they serve Yahweh, and they serve idols on the same, in the same verse, it says. That could happen. The bottom line is we don't know for sure why she stole them, but if nothing else, thievery is wrong. Isn't that, isn't that true? Thievery is wrong. She had no right to steal from anybody, let alone her father. This is a disappointment after a great statement in verse 16. She said, do whatever God tells you to do. And now she's stealing an, an idol. Here's some, here's some advice from all of us, for all of us, including myself. If you're going to tell someone to do whatever God has said, then maybe you yourself should be doing whatever God has said. Now, that's, that's difficult. And one of the things he said is, you shall not steal. Same word, Ten Commandments. And then Mike's going to preach on Romans 2.21 eventually. I think, what, six weeks from now or so? Just kidding. Romans 2.21, Paul said to the Jews, You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? Very convicting passage in Genesis, honestly, especially for preachers, since we're always telling people whatever God has said, do. And that's one reason it's difficult to do this job, because we actually have to practice what we preach. By the way, that doesn't eliminate the need for all believers to practice what they preach. Every believer is under that obligation. It applies to all of us. 
And so Rachel deceives. And then you have Jacob's deception. Look at verse 20. Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean. Boy, they haven't even left yet. Or they've barely left. And we all have all this deception going on. Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him he was fleeing. So he fled. Notice the word fled and fleeing, always in connection with Jacob. He fled with all that he had, and he rose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Back-to-back deceivers. It just runs in the family. First Rachel, now Jacob. Jacob deceived Laban, it says. Kind of like watching tennis. I thought of tennis match. Jacob and Laban are the players just volleying back and forth, except the tennis ball's deception, just constantly deceiving each other. It never stops. But I want you to see this purposeful connection between verses 19 and 20. You see the word deceived in verse, uh, verse 20, Jacob deceived Laban. That actually is the word stole, the same as in verse 19. It's the same exact word. Rachel, verse 19, Rachel stole the household idols from her father. Verse 20, Jacob stole. Actually, literally, it's Jacob stole the heart of Laban. He stole the heart of Laban is what it actually says, literally. How did Jacob steal the heart of Laban? By not telling him they were leaving. By not telling him they were leaving and going back home, Laban is off shearing sheep somewhere. You could say that Jacob stole his heart by stealing away uh, on the journey. You know, I was thinking, when I was thinking about this, I, if some of you football fans may remember this, you may not. <clears throat> back in 1984, the owner of the Baltimore uh, Colts back then, Baltimore Colts, uh, they, he decided to move his team to Indianapolis. And so... Without any sort of public announcement, no announcement whatsoever, they hired movers to pack up the team's belongings, and they, in the middle of the night, they drove to Indianapolis from Baltimore. The next day, they emerged as the, not the Baltimore Colts, but the Indianapolis Colts, and Baltimore, city of Baltimore was in an absolute uproar about the whole thing, the whole NFL was. That's what Jacob is doing, the secretive move, and Laban is going to be in an uproar about it. Verse 20 says he was fleeing. You know, remember Jacob had to flee Canaan to get to Laban? Now he's fleeing Laban to get back to Canaan. But how did he steal the heart of Laban? How did he, why does it say he stole the heart of Laban? Well, let me ask you a question. How would you feel if you had grandchildren and you had relatives and those relatives left town without telling you? I can tell you as a grandfather, you would be, feel like your heart was ripped out. Laban is not the most tender-hearted uncle, father, grandfather around, but apparently he does some, have a heart to some degree. And he's going to be very upset. Jacob stole his heart. Verse 22, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. So three days later, and somebody comes to Laban and says, hey, did you know that son-in-law of yours hightailed it out of town? He's gone. He didn't even know this. And that got Laban's attention. Sheep sharing or not, he's going to run them down. And so he, got, he does. Verse 23, they travel seven days. Jacob's got a three-day head start. Ten days later, they catch up with him. Uh, I read that was about 300 miles away from Euphrates River, Gilead. He had a long trip ahead of him. Laban, what do you think Laban wants to do? He's boiling mad. He wants to confront Jacob with only the Lord knows what he's going to say or do, but the night before, he's going to see Jacob. He has a dream. Look at verse 24. God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob, either good or bad. I think he's, he's saying, Be careful, Laban. Take care. Watch yourself. I don't want you to say anything to Jacob. I don't think he's saying, 
you can't say hello or goodbye or something. I think he's forbidding him to speak words that are very harsh, words that would influence him to return back to Laban, or words that would be uh, chewing him out or something like that. One writer said this, Laban is not to prosecute and take legal action against Jacob. This is serious. And God comes to him in a dream and says, I'm telling you, Laban, don't say anything to him. Now, if I had gotten that warning from the Lord, I'd be quaking in my boots. I'd be scared to death. But Laban is hard-headed. He's not a follower of the Lord. He gets the message. He still pushes it, though. And he launches into a tirade. Look at verse 25. Laban caught up with Jacob. Now, Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban, with his kinsmen, camped in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done by deceiving me and carrying my daughters uh, like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with timbrel and with lyre, and did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you have done foolishly. It's in my power to do you, to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. And so Laban's playing the role of prosecuting attorney. He levels two accusations against Jacob. Number one, he accuses him of deception. Look at verse 26 again. What have you done by deceiving me? Once again, that's literally what have you done by stealing my heart. And then verse 27, why did you secretly flee secretly and deceive me? Why did you steal me? Again, the word steal is what the word is literally. He also says, you've treated my daughters like captives of the sword, like POWs, prisoners of war. Notice what Laban doesn't say. He doesn't say, oh, remember how I deceived you, Jacob? Say anything about that at all. He doesn't say anything about mistreating his daughters. He doesn't say anything about using their weddings to his advantage. He shows absolutely no concern for their feelings back then. He doesn't bring any of that up at all. Uh, even Rachel has said in verse 15, he treats us like foreigners. None of that is said. It's more like Laban was the one who treated his daughters like captains of the sword, by the way. He's the one that did that. Rachel and Leah had willingly left. They weren't forced. They weren't kidnapped to go with Laban, to go with Jacob, rather. Now, you think about Laban. Here's a guy who likes to accuse other people of, of, uh, doing, of sinning and doing wrong things, but he never accepts the responsibility himself, never does. He likes to pick at the specks in their eye, but he's got a huge log in his own eye but he can't see it. Everybody else sees it, but he can't see it. He's just not aware of it. He continues by saying, if he had just known, if I had just known you were leaving, boy, I would have thrown a party. We would have had a farewell party. This would have been great. I would have sent you off in style. There would have been music. There would have been singing. And I could have kissed my dear grandchildren goodbye. I wanted to do that as well. But when has Laban shown himself to be a family man? I didn't get that impression. All I got the, was the impression he was a deceiver and a cheat the whole time. We've been reading the last few chapters. He tells Jacob in verse 28, what you have done is foolish. Now, that's the one thing I agree with that Laban said here. It was foolish of Jacob to leave in the way he did. In the way he did. He should have told Laban up front he was going to, where he was, why he was going, that he was going and stand his ground. He should have trusted God. To, to, God said he'd be with him. He'd help him. He'd watch over him, all these things. He, never did. he didn't trust God on this at all. Sometimes we have to take a stand for the Lord in our families, among our family and our relatives. They may not like what we have to say. But sometimes we need to say to them, look, folks, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You're not going to go to church? We're going to go to church. 
If you're not going to serve the Lord, we're going to serve the Lord. I'm sorry. That's how it's going to be. Let the chips fall where they may. Jacob should have said, look, the Lord doesn't want us to go. We're going to go. But the way he went about it was foolish. Laban then goes on to say, once again, he lets, once again, I'm going to let Jacob, uh, Laban, uh, Jacob, Laban's going to let Jacob know who's in control. It's Laban who's in control. Look at verse 29. Laban says, it's, it's in my power to do you harm. My power. I have the upper hand here. I'm in control here. I can do whatever I want to here. Reminded me of Pilate. Pilate standing before questioning Jesus, and he said, just prior to the cross, in John 19, 11, he said, do you not know that I have power to release you? I have power to release you. I have power to crucify you. And what did Jesus say? He said, you would have no power at all unless it had been given you from heaven. People like to think they're in control. Everybody likes to think they're in control all the time, but they are only in control if God allows them to be. God allowed Laban to be in control for some time, but no longer. He's not in control anymore. But I'm sure if he was, if God did allow him, he would bring some harm or punish Jacob in some way. By the way, in verse 29, the you there, where it says, it's in my power to do you harm, that's in plural, that's in the plural. He's saying, it's in my power to harm every one of you. Wow, this guy is a, he's, un, he's unbelievable. So this tirade is not only directed at Jacob only, but also the whole family. You know, why would you want to potentially threaten your own family members? He was, verse 27, he said, uh, I want to give you a music festival. I would, have, I would have let you go with music. Verse 28, I never got to kiss my grandkids good, goodbye, but now he's saying I could threaten, I could threaten all of you. If I was so inclined, I would bring harm upon any of you. The, the word for harm is actually evil. I could bring evil upon all of you. What kind of evil is he talking about? Is he saying I could cause you physical harm? Is he saying I could force you to return to my house? Laban sounds like a schizophrenic. Then the next thing, he reports that the only thing holding him back from expressing, expressing his full fury is the dream in which the Lord warned him concerning his speech to Laban. But Laban doesn't even obey that very well. But he accuses Jacob. His second accusation is in verse 30. Uh, look at verse 30. He says, Now you have indeed gone away because you long greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? What a great question, right? Then Jacob replied to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself for Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them he says look Jacob I know you're homesick but did you have to steal my gods did you really have to do that first of all he declares his religious belief he says I'm an idolater basically I worship pagan gods you know Laban shows very little regard for God for the Lord except when it's to his advantage uh, except when God is, he thinks God's blessing him because of Jacob but now he says this, these are my gods. These are my gods you've stolen. This is who I worship. He comes out and declares it. And he accuses J uh, Jacob himself, singular there, of being a thief. Of course, Jacob has no idea what he's talking about. He didn't know Rachel stole the gods. So his, first re his reply to the first accusation is this in verse 31. Jacob says, I was motivated by fear to leave, thinking you might take my wives from me. And I, I'm sure he did think that. Uh, the Lord told him to leave. He probably was afraid, but he shouldn't have doubted because God said, what? I'm with you. I'll take care of you. As to the second accusation, Jacob 
says, well, look, if you find someone with these gods, then it's the death penalty for them. He has no idea what he's saying right here. Remember, according to chapter 30, verse 43, Jacob all has servants, also has servants. Maybe he thought it was his servants that have stolen the, the idols. But Laban wants to make a careful search of everybody's tent. Look at verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maids, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and into Rachel's tent. All the tents. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel saddle. So they're little idols, not big. And she could hide them in there. And she sat on them. And Laban felt through all the tent, but he did not find them. She said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. Um, Laban doesn't even trust his own daughters. He's got to search in their, their tents. Maybe one of you stole it. This is the family. We're talking that he, in fact, he's the master deceiver, so he probably taught them to be that way too. Now, we know Rachel had hidden the, the, the idols in the camel saddle. Uh, to, uh, to give an ex- she gives the excuse, well, it's the time of the month I can't get up. Uh, I can't get up here, which makes her a thief and a liar, by the way. Yeah, this is a pathetic episode, this whole thing. Think about this. If gods like Laban's household idols have any real, have any real power at all, how is it they could be stolen? How can you steal gods that have power? Maybe Laban should have insured them against theft. False gods can also be hidden, apparently, and you can even sit on them. You know, I'd advise Laban to abandon these worthless idols. They're worthless. And go to the one who has the power, the one that appeared to him in a dream with great power. So this search ends in vain. They don't even find the idols. That brings us to the third key word in this passage, and that's the word dispute. Dispute in verses 36 to 42. Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes have, and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required of it in my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years have I been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, and so he rendered judgment last night. So you can see the pain which Jacob has accumulated over 20 years. That boil up inside him, it all comes out now. It all comes gushing forth. And all that time, Jacob has been a standout employee, great employee. And all that time, there had been no miscarriages as a shepherd. He didn't have any miscarriages of the animals in which he was in charge. If a wild beast killed an animal under Jacob's watch, Jacob, made, Jacob took the hit. By the way, under ancient Near Eastern law, the shepherd was not held responsible for losses incurred from the, from the attacks of wild beasts. He shouldn't have had to do that. But under Laban's law, the shepherd did take the loss. Jacob had to work under harsh conditions. That's typical of the Middle East. You got baking heat by day and you got cold temperatures by night. And then add to that sleepless nights, you had a rough time. 
How did his, his employer reward him? By, he never knew what his pay was going to be. Like the wind, it just kept changing. What, what would you think if you're, you go to get your paycheck and you don't know what it's going to be? It could be $100 this week, 300 the next week, 500 the next week, 1000 next week, 50 the next week, and it just keeps changing. That's what happened to Jacob. Jacob wraps this up by giving God the glory in verse 42. He makes it clear which God he's speaking of. He's talking about the God of Abraham and Isaac, not a household idol that can be stolen or hidden or sat upon. The Lord God is actually with his people. Look at verse 42. He said, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been for me, he had not been for me. He was with Jacob and he was for Jacob. And as Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? No layman can stand in the way of God. God is, was for Jacob. Was Jacob. He was God's man. Jacob confesses that apart from the Lord that he would have been penniless. But if you recall in Genesis, just as the Lord saw the affliction of Hagar and just as he saw the affliction of Leah, he also now sees the affliction of Jacob. This constant theme through Genesis. Jacob says that God rendered you judgment last night. That was the dream he had in which God warned Laban. Laban. Laban claimed to have power over Jacob, but Laban had no power over Jacob's God. And that brings us finally to the, the fourth key word, distrust. Distrust, verse 43. Then Laban replied to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine, all mine. Well, what can I do? Sounds like a little kid. What can I do this day to these my daughters or to make their children... Uh, whom they have borne. So now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to the, his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Jacob, Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it was named Galid and Mizpah. For he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from the other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is, is with us see, to see, then God is witness between you and me. Laban said to Jacob, behold this heap and behold the pillar with which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm. You will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham... And Nahor and the God of their father judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his kinsmen to the meal. And they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. Early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. Finally, rid of that guy. Now Laban knows his game over for him. He sees the handwriting on the wall. He tries to make the claim that Jacob's wives and children and flocks are all his. They're not. They're Jacob's. The only thing he can do is come up with this lame covenant. Now, this covenant looks good on the surface. You know, you see the word covenant in the Bible. Oh, this is the covenant. We gotta, this covenant is lame. It really is. Uh, it looks good on the surface. They go through the ritual of gathering stones that serve as symbols for the covenant. They, each, they give the symbols a name. Jacob Laban uses an Aramaic word, and he says, which means heap of witness. These stones are a heap of witness. Jacob says... A Hebrew word, which means these stones are a heap of witness, the same meaning. They're going to witness to the covenant. Laban also calls it Mizpah, meaning watchtower. 
Now, notice how Laban invokes the name of the Lord here. Oh, the Lord God's going to be between us, and that's who is going to watch over us. Why is he doing that? Well, his gods are hiding somewhere. He can't even find them. <laughs> Plus, he may use these, the Lord God, to appease Jacob somewhat. Now, verse 49. Let's read verse 49 again. Jacob, Laban says, I'm going to call this Mizpah. Sorry, I'm getting Laban and Jacob and Moses and Aaron and Noah confused. Verse 49, Laban says, Mizpah, let's call it Mizpah, for he said, may the Lord watch between me and you when we are absent one from the other. Now, that sounds great. That verse has been put on cards. You ever seen that verse? It's been put on uh, jewelry for people. Now, I have a connection with this. When I first met Sandy, she got me this charm. Uh, actually, it was a heart-shaped charm, and it was in two pieces, half and half. I got one half, she got the other half. And when you put those, and it had this verse on it. So when you, they were apart, you saw half the verse here, half the verse over here. And when you put them together, you can read the whole verse, and you know the lot. And we would say, "Well, the Lord watched between us when we're absent one from the other," as if we were thinking the Lord's watching out for us when we're. And that was true. It was a very meaningful thing. I, I actually loved that charm. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's not the meaning this context is pointing to. Uh, this is actually still like the bracelet, the the the, uh, the charm, not the bracelet, the charm. I don't wear bracelets, but. This is actually a statement of distrust from Laban. A statement of distrust. It sounds good, doesn't it? May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from the other. That's not what he's doing here. Uh, this is a statement of distrust. He's actually, this is from Laban, the man who trusts no one, the great deceiver. He basically threatens Jacob with this. He says, you had better not hurt my daughters while you're away from me down in Canaan. God's watching you. He's watching over you. Well, that sounds very pious coming from Laban. God is watching you, Jacob, you rascal. He's going he's gonna to come down hard on you if you're messing around down there. I'm not going to harm you. These symbols are meant to say, I'm not going to harm you. You're not going to harm me. The God of Abraham is going to be the judge. That's, the, that's bad, actually bad news for Laban. He doesn't realize it. Laban acts as though Jacob is the one who can't be trusted. Jacob is the one who mis may mistreat his daughters. Jacob is the one who may cause harm to his daughters. But Jacob is not the cause for concern. Laban is. Everything Laban says is, applies to himself, not Jacob. But Jacob lets it go, and they seal the covenant. I think he's, let's just get this over with. And you can be in the rearview mirror. And he has a, they have the meal, a covenant meal to seal the covenant. And Laban, thankfully, goes back home. And they go on their way. Now, this is a covenant of distrust. This is not the Abrahamic covenant. Well, the Mosaic Covenant or the Davidic Covenant or any of those. This is the covenant of distrust. Laban does not trust Jacob, and Jacob does not trust Laban. You know, sometimes it's that way with people. You just have to agree to disagree. Romans 12, 18. If possible, I love the way this is phrased. King James Version says, as much as lieth in you. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If possible, so much as it, so as far as it depends upon you, be a peaceful all men. If possible, sometimes it's just not possible. Some relations with people out there in the world, no matter how hard you try, they just don't want to, they just, it's just going to be a matter of distrust. And 
holding someone at arm's length. We, nevertheless, as believers, we're called to be what? We're called to be peacemakers. We're called to do that. We're called to be witnesses. That should be our goal. We should work towards that end always. Sometimes you're just going to have to leave it in God's hands and say, Brother, I'll pray for you. Sir, I'll pray for you. And they may not even like that. But do you see what's happening in these last few chapters we've, we've read? Do you see what's happening? No matter how crazy things get, the Lord is fulfilling his promises. Just like he said in chapter 28, and just like he said to Abraham and Isaac, he said, I promise I'll be with you. I promise I'll take care of you. I promise to return you to Canaan, and all this is coming to pass. All of it's coming to pass. He's going to return him back to the land of promise. As always, God is good as his word. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful for your word tonight. We pray that uh, as we go our separate ways, we will trust you this week, Lord, because in our relationships with people, maybe some of us here tonight have people we deal with that are very difficult. Help us to be a witness to those people, a testimony to those people, to pray for those people as much as we can to be peacemakers in those situations. Pray for your grace to do that. We pray for the Spirit of God to work in our lives, as Stephen talked about this morning in Sunday School. Spirit of God to work in our lives this coming week to do a work that would glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.